Hello friends, I am Ashish Darbari, founder and CEO of Axiomize. To our new listeners, welcome and to our old ones, welcome back. I have been dreaming for this hour for over a year and I've been trying to schedule this podcast session with this guest and thanks to the COVID times that we are in and people are getting so much busier, it's been a little challenging, but I have a firm authority in formal methods today in-house and the person I'm talking about is a friend of mine from many years, Professor Shupratik Chakravarti from IIT Bombay. Hi, Shupratik. Hi, Ashish. Uh, thanks for having me on this podcast. No, man, thank you for uh, finding the time. I know uh, things are crazy for everyone these days and it's been a little yeah. difficult. So, hey, let's start by talking about you a little bit. So. I, I know you, of course, I think first time we met was about 2005, six time frame. But, you know, let's share a little bit of your personal journey. I think a lot of people uh, listening in would like to know, how did you end up being in science and engineering? And how exactly did you end up being a professor at IIT Bombay? Yeah, so this is uh, like walking down memory lane and uh, you know understanding how and why things work the way they do has always been uh, of interest to me you know starting from uh, i don't know what age i was when i opened up a transistor radio that we had at our home trying to see what happens when i turn this knob and why does the volumes uh, you know uh, reduce or increase when i turn the volume knob I, I don't think i understood fully what was going on but at least i could see what happens, you know, some variable capacitor was being tuned as I was turning a knob and all of that. Uh, so this interest of how and why things work uh, has stayed on with me. And uh, I guess mathematics and physics uh, really sort of captured my imagination when I was uh, in high school and when I was preparing for college and all of that. So, uh, hey, Shupratik, I mean, which city, which city did you grow up? Which town in India did you grow up? I grew up in the town of Kharagpur. Oh, right. It's a small town uh, in West Bengal. Yes, yes. And this is also one of the places where one of the Indian Institutes of Technology is located. Although uh, I was not related to uh, the IIT uh, until I joined it for sure. my undergraduate, so sure. I was from the town. Uh, I was from uh, the, the town of Kharagpur, which also exists beyond IIT. Okay, sure. so uh, you know, uh, so when I went to college, uh, I guess there was this dilemma that uh, you know, should I take up electrical or should I take up uh, computer science? <laughs> because uh, I knew that, uh, or at least I was told that uh, computer science, uh, you know, gives you a lot of opportunity for sort of exploring the mathematical side of things whereas if you really like physics perhaps electrical is uh, you know is, is the right choice for you and i sort of dilly dallied between the two and uh, funnily you know I, I sort of got admits in a few colleges in india and i took uh, i opted for electrical in some of them and i opted for computer science in the others and then finally when i joined iit kharagpur i had opted for computer science there uh, so that's, that was my introduction to computer science and of course I really enjoyed what I studied at uh, uh, IIT Kharagpur. I mean it was uh, really an eye-opening experience understanding uh, the science behind 
uh, computation behind computers and all of that. Uh, but then after my uh, bachelor's, I decided that I also need to learn electrical a bit because, you know, physics uh, was a very, very you know, close subject to me. And so for my master's and uh, PhD, I officially enrolled in the electrical engineering program at Stanford. Right. Uh, I was in the computer systems library, but, you know, preparing for the qualifiers over there gave me the opportunity to learn a lot of things about electrical that I had missed out in my undergraduate. And uh, I think it was, uh, you know, it was an amazing experience. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know why there are these boundaries between computer science and electrical. I correct. Think. Correct. The, <laughs> this is, you know, what I find very interesting in your journey is you moved from CS to electrical and you were drawn into electrical because of your interests in physics. And it happened the exact opposite with me. I got enrolled in electrical and electronics engineering and I got enchanted by computer science. And I went, I want to do a career in, in, in computer science. But actually, you are, you are absolutely spot on that these boundaries are absolutely artificial. But when you moved to Stanford and you were doing your master's, you know, you were slowly building up your knowledge base in um, the things that you were not uh, looking at in IIT Kharagpur. What happened in your PhD then? How did you decide to work on asynchronous designs and which year was this? Yeah, so uh, I joined Stanford for my master's program in 1993. And then uh, immediately I took a whole bunch of uh, courses, uh, you know, which, which are not typically taught in computer science curriculum. So things like uh, digital signal processing, things like uh, uh, you know, device physics mm -hmm. and this kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, for the qualifiers, uh, the PhD qualifiers at Stanford, so we had to choose, you know, I don't remember, some seven or eight subjects. And of course, there were these subjects also there. So I, I, I did study these quite seriously uh, because I had an interest and I also had to get through my qualifiers. Uh, but once I uh, was in the PhD program, of course, I had to decide what topic should I, uh, should I focus on. And then I uh, chose something, uh, you know, actually my PhD topic was on uh, algorithmic timing analysis of asynchronous circuits. Mm -hmm. So uh, I had to understand how asynchronous circuits work and that was very interesting, very nice. Uh, it, it allowed me to sort of to uh, use, uh, you know, the different things that I'd learned about devices and about uh, physics of how things work. Uh, but at the same time, I guess I, I could also uh, use my stuff. I mean, I also, it's not only the, the courses from uh, physics and signal processing oriented that I took at Stanford, I also took CS courses, course CS courses. And so uh, in my PhD, when I enrolled, I just thought that I should put these two together to see uh, you know, how best I can uh, sort of come up with efficient analysis of uh, circuits, which by themselves, you know, I mean, the, the, the nice thing about asynchronous circuits is that they are not necessarily as large as, uh, you know, synchronous circuits and clearly synchronous circuits dominate the industry and the design landscape. But analyzing asynchronous circuits is notoriously difficult because you do not get something nice like a clock abstraction that things are happening at clock ticks. So you really have to sort of worry about how signals are interacting with each other at any point of time and what does that do. So, uh, you know, doing something like hazard analysis, 
figuring out when can glitches appear uh, when you don't have a clock to stop things from uh, you know going at arbitrary times. So this was uh, I mean this looked very cool for me and uh, I ended up doing my PhD with uh, David Dill. Who, I see. Uh, yeah, who had an uh, amazing PhD thesis, and I read his PhD thesis. I mean, he he analyzed asynchronous circuits in his PhD thesis using trace theory, and uh, I thought, uh, uh, yeah, this is a cool guy to work with because he understands both the electrical side of it and the CS side of it and appreciates it. And uh, and of course, you know, I learned a lot working with him. And uh, so, uh, you know. Overall, what I would say is that uh, my journey has been, uh, until I did my PhD, has been trying to learn as much as I could and put to use, put to good use, all of that learning, both from the CS and the electrical side. And then, of course, uh, you know, after my PhD, I spent a year as uh, a researcher at Fujitsu Labs of America. Um, uh, and once again, there, you know, I was in the CAD group, which you know, deals with algorithms and also circuit design. And then when I returned back to India, once again, I had to choose between computer science and electrical. And so I said, okay, uh, you know, now maybe I will come back to computer science. It was CS to EE back to CS. Mm. Uh, but of course, I, I, I keep alive my links with EE folks very much. Uh, my first PhD student was co-guided with uh, somebody with a colleague from the electrical department. Right. So I had a lot of fun mm -hmm. understanding circuits, uh, circuit behavior. Um, you know, for example, this thing about uh, metastability, which right. is when, when a flip-flop is trying to latch data and the clock comes too close uh, to the data changing. I mean, this has some really cool <laughs> physics behind it. And uh, it was, it's, it's very, very interesting trying to understand that and then trying to apply all your algorithmic knowledge to see how best you can avoid this without necessarily, uh, you know, cutting down on the performance. And, and uh, yeah, the, 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 you know, you mentioned metastability and, and clocks and asynchronous and, you know, the clock domain crossing is one of the most yes, <laughs> difficult problems yes, to I solve mean, at full chip level. Um, there are lots of yeah. vendor solutions these days. Um, they actually have some automated ways of solving this problem but it has taken everybody um, a lot of time because it's not just structural it's also functional and um, yeah it's, it's and, and i think the phenomenon of metastability is uh, is you know if you look at the physics of what's going on why is it that something can get hung in a intermediate state and uh, what are the best ways of coming out about it i guess people in the asynchronous world uh, have worried about this for a very, very long time. And I think brilliant papers written there. You know, experiments have been designed to study the disability. And um, it, it was, uh, you know, very, very enjoyable learning all of that and uh, trying to come up with algorithms which help you analyze those things. So, um, so, so what is interesting is I never knew you, you, you enjoyed asynchronous so much because when I met you, I met I met you in the context of a completely different topic and field, and um, I still recall writing you an email when I was traveling to India. And uh, by that time, my understanding was you were a former verification expert, researcher. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so how did that happen? So yeah, that's very interesting. You know, I mean, so they said I 
I, I was student with David Dill, and uh, Dave was of course uh, you know an authority in formal methods and formal verification. Of course. So, uh, so although I was the only guy in his group who was really doing something related to uh, you know design and analysis. The rest of the folks uh, in this group were all like deeply steeped in formal methods. Correct, correct. So the weekly meetings that I'd have would be much more of a learning experience from me listening from 10 other, uh, you know, colleagues yes. about, uh, you know, what papers they're reading and what did they find cool in that paper and what kind of techniques were working out and what were not working. I mean, for example, uh, I mean, Murphy, which is mm -hmm. from David Dale's group, uh, I mean, some of the people who uh, who were developing optimizing Murphy. I mean, we were there in the same group meetings every right. week. You know, we were there uh, a few offices apart, so we would keep talking, chatting. So I guess I was steeped in formal methods uh, while I was there with Dave. Uh, although my PhD topic wasn't really about formal verification, but it was about formal analysis, correct? Where we were trying to design algorithms to prove the properties which would help ensure that asynchronous circuits work correctly. So, uh, but over there, I guess I got my, uh, you know, hand-holding of what formal methods, uh, formal verification was. And so by the time I finished my PhD, I already knew uh, quite a bit of, of formal verification. Sure. I, you know, being a part of Dave's group. And uh, so then when I returned back to India, I said, well, you know, this is something that I have not, I mean, it's so cool, so interesting, but I guess uh, for my PhD, I didn't focus on this, uh, you know, full pleasant, so, so let me dive into it. And since then, I have been doing that. Awesome. So, so, uh, so but I, I do keep my links uh, open to the asynchronous world as well. And <laughs> I no longer, yeah, I no longer serve the PC of the async conferences, but I, I do, uh, I, I did that for a few years, even after I came back, but uh, I I do keep my eyes and ears open, particularly if something is at the intersection of formal methods and asynchronous. That really gets me excited. So you're you're still keeping in touch with your roots. Um, that's interesting. So let me come to this um, question. So you started a journey in IIT Kharagpur, then moved to Stanford and did CS. Then you did electrical, and then come came back to CS. So you've been a teacher and a researcher for what now two decades or more uh, I... yes two decades two decades nice. so what is your experience of teaching formal methods to graduate students in iit i'm certainly interested in the teaching side of uh, this topic yeah so this is uh... You know, this, this is something that I have also thought about that, you know, when I teach formal methods to uh, both graduate and undergraduate students here, uh, I mean, we do have a course in our department, which is uh, logic in computer science, where, you know, some of the fundamentals of formal methods were taught. So, you know, most students are swayed by the words machine learning or mm -hmm. you know artificial intelligence and uh, you know similar thing and of course for good reasons and sure. the technologies which are really changing the world 
uh, and uh, you know about a decade back or maybe 15 years back you know networks and things related to the internet and stuff like that were really quote unquote hot of course formal methods is also hot but uh, in my opinion but uh, you know so when the when, when students try to take uh, courses when they enroll for courses uh, a sort of significant criterion that they have in mind is that how does it tune with job market perceptions mm-hmm. right i mean is, is the job market really looking for these kinds of uh, areas on your cv or are they going to you know if, if you say that you have done three projects using whatever tensorflow or pytorch whatever maybe that that's better for the job market because there, there are a lot of jobs out there presumably which which try to make use of their kind of skills so uh, one of the challenges that we face these days is uh, to sort of get uh, a large number of good students interested in doing things beyond machine learning and uh, formal methods uh, is one of those things but interestingly, I and mean, this, this is a very interesting and recent development that uh, you know, even in machine learning, I mean, things have come to a point where you build gigantic, you know, maybe deep neural networks with million parameters and you know, probably billion parameters these days, uh, and then uh, you are talking of using these, you know, very complex computational devices. Uh, in applications where the cost of an error may be very, very high. I mean, for example, uh, you know, I, I, I'm sure you're aware of this, that the Federal Aviation Authority, FAA, uh, has been considering uh, this, uh, you know, standard for unmanned aerial vehicles, like drones are going to be moving around dispatching stuff, uh, which is called the ACAS-XU, and uh, and this is supposed to avoid collision between these unmanned alien vehicles. And they are actually recommending using a neural net right. to sort of take the decisions mm-hmm. as these you know unmanned drones are flying around. And, uh, and and they have this really long set of rules uh, which are supposed to be followed by things in flight. And the decisions for these are supposed to be taken by a neural net sitting on these uh, drones. And so a question comes that how do you know that you know this neural net is really doing all that it was supposed to do and nothing more and not really doing anything uh, you know, which is maybe dangerous. And so this question of formally verifying these machine learning devices is becoming increasingly important. And I guess this is also important when uh, you are sort of using things, uh, I guess there are, uh, you know, you want to use machine learning to sort of identify and classify human beings as, uh, you know, whatever, belonging to a certain category, yeah. not belonging to a certain category. You know, let's not talk about what those categories are. Correct. But then, uh, you know, you need to offer explanation and you need to provide some guarantees that some untoward thing doesn't happen. So, so safety in machine learning, I guess, is becoming very important. And uh, so therefore, you know, it's again formal methods to the rescue there. I mean, <laughs> there is really no other way to, 
So are your oh, students, so, sorry to interrupt you, are your students buying into this? Are they feeling excited that you're actually talking about, in my opinion, two very hot topics, <laughs> machine learning as well as formal? What? Yeah, so, uh, you know, I have actually offered a course in the current semester, which is about formal methods in machine learning. Awesome. And uh, yeah, I had, you know, uh, in, in the first few classes, there were actually quite a few students. I mean, I, I didn't expect that many. Uh, but then I also set the rules of the class and said that, well, you've got to do a project. You have to show me that this thing works. It's not just reading papers. Uh, so, of course, some, some people dropped out thinking that the load might be heavy or whatever. Uh, because it requires them to uh, read papers, roughly two papers a week, uh, understand those uh, and solve some problems related to those. And then also pick up a project where they can apply a tool, a real tool that has been developed as part of these papers and then sort of see the strengths and weaknesses. Uh, but what I'm trying to say is that uh, with this, uh, you know, new felt need, I guess, a new felt urgency of safety in machine learning, uh, this is, I think, yet another area where I think formal methods has a big role to play. I really think formal, role. I think formal, um has a role in everything. I, I recall a chat with um, Harry Foster many years ago, and mm -hmm. we were sitting in a social environment and Harry was pulling my leg and he was asking me saying, so tell me Ashish, what can formal not do? And mm -hmm. um, I used to say, well, the only thing you can't do with formal is make love with your wife. But you know, other than that, <laughs> other than that, you can use formal for everything. I, I think it's, it's not so much the fact that we have to use everything deeply formal, mathematical um, to the last T, although that would be ideal. But I think it's the process of reasoning and thinking yeah. about things in a structured, logical way, which is what yeah. I think you are trying to teach students. And and I think this is a great, um, this is really a great opportunity. So is, are these courses available for anyone outside IIT or? Yeah, so I guess, you know, from my course webpage, from, from my homepage, mm -hmm. there's a link to my course webpage, and from my course webpage, uh, you know, I at least put up most of the material, and I also try to put up some of the explanatory, I mean, now that things are online, uh, I have prepared some explanatory videos on my Excellent. own. Okay. I mean, not about everything, but about some of the stuff, and I have put them up there, and then... Uh, so, so, so the real interaction with students happens through, uh, uh, you know, in our case, Microsoft Teams, mm -hmm. uh, where it's a separate channel for IIT's students sure. and faculty. Sure. So those things, I guess, are not publicly available, sure. but uh, th there are some parts of it which are Awesome. That's very useful to know because, you know, we launched this new course and uh, you kindly reviewed it. And now what I'm going to do just after we jump out of this chat is going to give a reference to students so they can come and look you up and and find more oh, interesting yeah. reading material yeah, yeah so this would be great yeah. hey so i want i'm trying to talk to you you know about what symbolic simulation so yeah. so you and i worked on this initially and um, you you said oh you like testy and then we worked on a project uh, back in the days when i used to be at southampton but you took it really seriously and after i moved on to industry mm -hmm. you kept working on this and developing word level ste solutions i believe together with carl uh, seeger yes yes so tell us a little bit about that man what, where are we with word level ste and um, yeah yeah that's another very interesting uh, line that you know i'm i'm still sort of working uh, somewhat you know uh, 
uh, on, in, the, in the sort of... Uh, <laughs> One of the many projects. <laughs> yeah, in the sense that, yeah, I mean, there are other things that have come to occupy my time, but I still go back to this thing. So, you know, I mean, I guess it's, this is, uh, you know, no secret that uh, when you want to do reasoning about data paths, right, and if you do bit-level reasoning about data paths, uh, then, you know, as your data paths become wider, uh, then it's difficult to scale up that reasoning, right? You go from 64 to 128 bits and, uh, you know, the, the complexity of reasoning at the level of bits has gone up from 2 raised to 64 to 2 raised to 128. And Correct. that's that's not pleasant. Okay. So, but I mean, you're probably still doing addition of words. I mean, earlier you were adding 64-bit words or multiplying 64-bit words. Now you're adding or multiplying 128-bit words. So, uh, so if we can lift the reasoning from bit level to word level, then perhaps a lot of the reasoning that I did for 64-bit words uh, will just be usable again at mm -hmm. uh, you know 128-bit words or you know whatever. Maybe to go even beyond that. So the idea of doing word-level reasoning, the idea of sort of formulating verification conditions at the word level, has this you know, huge uh, appeal, it has this huge promise that if you can really do the reasoning at the word level, if you don't need to blast it into bits, then it just scales up so much better. And it, it's kind of, you know, oblivious of what was the word width, you can sort of apply the same reasoning. Right. So let me let me let me stop you here. So I have been bantering all of the EDA vendors, and um, even when I used to be at OneSpin, had numerous talks with their R&D teams to build word-level solvers. And everybody tells me building word-level solvers is a great idea, but very hard to implement. Yeah. So uh, I, I think that's true. But I think there is a lot of uh, you know very very interesting stuff that has happened in the world of SMT solving, satisfiability mm -hmm. model mm -hmm. theories. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, there is an SMT competition that is held every year. And if you look at the trend of how SMT solvers are developing in the sense of what uh, the complexity of problems they can deal with and their performance, uh, the speed at which they can solve it, I mean, it's, it's just really you know, growing quite fast. In fact, uh, it appears that uh, you know, I mean, SAT solvers, of course, you can solve a, you know, a problem in the theory of bit vectors by blasting it out and, and throwing the latest and coolest SAT solver on it. But really for a very large class of problems where the reasoning is really at the word level, I mean, bit level, uh, word level solvers, bit vector solvers can really beat the hell out of uh, SAT solvers. And they can scale up so much better. And in fact, this is one of the main reasons why we went into word level STE, because uh, we felt that SMT solving technology. I mean, this was uh, you know around I guess several years back. Correct. Years back. Correct. Uh, we felt that SMT solving technology for bit vectors uh, was already at a stage where if I could formulate the problem in terms of words parameterized by certain widths uh, and just throw it in a simple solver, I would probably get better performance than just solving it at the bit level and throwing it at a SAT solver. So, uh, and you know, this was kind of vindicated by Carl. So I did this work with uh, two very amazing colleagues from, uh, who were then at Intel, 
and Carl was at uh, Intel Strategic Cat Labs at Oregon. Uh, and of course, now he's moved out of Intel. He's mm -hmm. at Chalmers University. Uh, and there was another colleague from uh, Intel IDC at Haifa in Israel, and Zurab Kashidash Vili. Uh -huh. And uh, basically, we we decided to you know sort of give this a very serious shot that uh, why not formulate SDE as word level constraints mm -hmm. and then piggyback on the power of SMP solvers which is only going to improve by the day mm -hmm. uh, to to solve problems at the level of words correct and I mean this idea sounded uh, really cool uh, but you know the primary problem with this I mean you've worked with SDE a lot so you know this that uh, when we implement SDE, I mean, the, the theory is nice, but mm -hmm. when we implement SDE, we use dual rail encoding. Correct. Right? Because we have to mm -hmm. use 0, 1, and mm -hmm. sort of x. Yeah. Now, wh what does it mean to say x for a word, right? Suppose, I mean, for a bit, I can say, yes, it is 0, 1, and x. Mm -hmm. Now, if I take a 64-bit word, mm -hmm. I don't want to say all the 2 raised to 64 values that the 64-bit word could have taken. Hmm. Or X because that becomes a very large set to deal with. So I'll right? tell you one thing we do in um, in hardware verification SVA style, um, mm -hmm. and the system Verilog semantics for dollar is unknown. Is that if mm -hmm. any of the bits in the word is unknown, then we would classify the whole word as unknown. Exactly. So exactly. that is a very strong so, abstraction, um, and probably. No, but that I think is a very useful abstraction. Because what happens is you do not want to treat individual bits as unknown because how does it matter if in a 64-bit word, bit 3 is x or bit 27 is x or both bits 3 and 27 are x. Uh, so that, of course, is the first thing that comes to mind. But then when you also look at designs that use uh, you know, words mm -hmm. to, uh, to sort of do computation, you also see that there are these operations which sort, sort of take a slice of a word and you know maybe they, they take a slice from so maybe this is 64 bit word but the first 32 bits uh, are always together the second 32 bits are sometimes slicing yeah, yeah. Ways, mm -hmm. right so the the idea was here to say that okay let's take a word level design and let's find out what are the divisions of those words which are never treated differently uh, Differently, correct. Right? Correct. So, so we want to find out these atomic parts of the mm -hmm, word, which mm -hmm. are always treated as a unit. The famous Ip and, Ip and Dill paper on scalar sets, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> right. So, and and then we want for each of those, we want to treat it as either a word or just X, correct. You know, without worrying about which bits. Correct. So this was the next logical step. Now the third step after that, which actually turned out to be quite difficult, and I think that was kind of the major contribution of the work that we did was to say that now we have to uh, define this algebra. I mean, if I'm saying A plus B, so I have to say what does it mean to talk about A plus B where, you know, A is a 64-bit word, maybe divided into two 32-bit chunks and one of those 32 bits can take on the value X. And I have to do all of this in a symbolic way mm -hmm. because it, it's not simulation that uh, I, I can look up the value and say what it Correct. is. So we actually came up with this technique where we said that if the if that word level atom that you're dealing with is let us say k bits, 
we're going to use k plus one bits for it. Mm -hmm. And that extra bit, we will design a logic which will tell us when that extra bit is set or unset. And if that extra bit is set, it means the values of the remaining k bits are to be ignored. Mm -hmm. And essentially, now we started talking about uh, you know words with an extra, you know, just like words in a cache have a dirty bit. Dirty bit. I was just going to say that. It's just pretty much the right? same yeah, it's, idea. It's mm -hmm. pretty much the same mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. But now we have to design a logic saying that, you know, what if I'm trying to add two words where each word is maybe divided into two or three parts and the the dirty bit or the invalid bit, as we call it, for each of those sub words uh, are some symbolic expressions because they are themselves dependent on other things that have happened in the past. Mm -hmm. And so we, we had to basically build up this logic of invalid bits, saying mm -hmm. that given invalid bits of operands mm -hmm. and values of operands, how do we figure out the invalid bits? And all of, this, all of this work is being done in the verification model, not in the design model. So you're reading, parsing the design model and then annotating exactly. the design model, basically extending the design model in the exactly. verification domain. It makes right. a lot of sense, yeah. And then we had to prove that whatever logic we have uh, designed for these invalid bits really captures all possible cases. Yeah, that is a tricky so, bit, right? <laughs> yeah, so I mean, so we have to finally prove a theorem that anytime uh, you know you are giving arguments with given invalid bits, which would not uniquely determine the value of one of those subwords. The invalid bit of that subword would get set to one. Mm -hmm. The logic has to ensure that mm -hmm. because otherwise we don't have completeness. Right. Right. So, so that was the hard part, and I guess we finally came up with that logic for uh, a whole bunch of RTL operators, you know, right. including things like division and shifting, right. and memory accesses, and this and that. Uh, and then we finally put all of this into a tool, and we we let it run on. You know, we started off with some car benchmarks, and then you know, I had a student who actually did an internship at Intel uh, right. and actually ran it on Intel's designs, and it, it did show a lot of promise. And then uh, Carl and Zurab, my collaborators from Intel, said, "Okay, let's put this in the." You know, I guess Intel has a whole bunch of tools that they run in parallel, mm -hmm. and they said, "Okay, this is going to be one of the tools that they, they they're also going to run in parallel," uh, and it. it Went up to that stage, and I was getting some good feedback from uh, from my collaborators there. But after that, I guess Intel went through a massive reorg, mm -hmm. and Carl uh, left Intel. Zurab moved out of the verification group, and he's doing machine learning well, okay. in Intel. And uh, so I I believe uh, it's out there. Yeah. Because I mean, Carl uh, keeps telling me that uh, you know he's he's really uh, I mean he thinks that this really solved one of the problems that they had extending SD to words. Uh, and of course, Carl now at Chalmers University, he's, he, he's on this massive project where he's rebuilding Forte. Right. For that would be awesome. Academic, uh, academic you know, open that source be awesome. version. Mm. And this, he says, is going to be part of that, you know, whenever the incarnation of Forte. Awesome, awesome, awesome. So that was a very, very, uh, you know, multi-year project mm. with some of, I mean, Carl is of course an authority in Steam. <laughs> he's, he's an authority on many, he's an authority of many topics. <laughs> yeah. And it was really amazing to work with him. I mean, he, he, he could, you know, sort of 
see ahead about right. what things would work, yeah. what things would work. Yeah. Okay, friends. So we've got to resume this chat next week. I know you guys uh, want to get more out of it, and so do I. So we will continue talking to Professor Shupratik Chakraborty, and we'll continue having these detailed deep dives into many technical topics. So do join us next week. Till then, keep safe, keep healthy, and we will be back soon. Thank you very much.